Hey, and welcome to episode 61 of the Thodcast, conversations about animation. Thank you so much for joining. And today, we've got two wonderful people to talk about a movie. And joining me today, uh, if I haven't introduced myself, I'm Philip Elke, recording from northern Minnesota. Also joined, coming in from Minnesota as well, Hannah Lee Smart. Hello, everyone. And my brother, also a Minnesotan, Dawson Elke. Hi. What's up, people? So, yeah, uh, we had a big autumnal release last week with Over the Garden Wall. But today we're uh, talking about something a little different. I know the SEO is probably not going to be happiest with us because, um, <laughs> you know, it's this movie was initially released, I think, on Earth Day in April of 1992. But we just kind of really wanted to talk about this one. And we've brought it up on some previous episodes. And I had never seen it. Uh, so I figure it's about time to take a dip in the gully. And <laughs> so uh, we present to you our little coverage on 1992's Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, directed by Bill Croyer, produced by Wayne Young, uh, based on a book by Diana Young, uh, this uh, husband and wife duo who had a dream to make a movie about the rainforest. Um, and I think they may have actually been separated by the time the movie came out and were producing it. But they're kind of the um, esoteric, kind of ecologically minded type. You might refer to them as Aussie hippies. <laughs> so um, they maybe still had an amicable relationship. That explains the kangaroo. <laughs> yes, yes. The fauna presented in this film clearly indicates that this is an Australian set film. But um, yeah, we can talk about all that and more. Um, Hannah, you really love this film. It was your idea originally, I think, to talk about it on the show. Uh, tell us more about your history with Fern Gully. It was just, I honestly don't know how I became obsessed with it, but it's one of those movies, um, which I'm not even sure where we got it from because my parents used to order those huge packs where there was like, you know, like 30 VHS tapes and they would just ship them to your house. They were called like family friendly movies or something. And there was this nice. other movie in there called like Penny Promise that was like for the big kids because it wasn't a cartoon. Um, I'm not sure if it came in one of those packs or we were very frequent at like our local Blockbuster, which was like a off-brand one, of course. <laughs> um, but I just remember constantly like begging everyone to watch this and any musical I could get my hands on. But until watching it as an adult, kind of like what I told you before, Philip, I think this movie actually probably affected my, my like brain as a kid and who I am now as an adult is very much, I think, affected by this movie or I just somehow um, connected with it because even now I'm like, yeah, yeah, like don't cut down the trees. Like it's wild. This movie was released by 20th Century Fox. It was probably the first major animated feature 
after I was born. Um, so I definitely wouldn't have remembered it when it came out. Uh, none of us here were maybe alive, except for me, <laughs> um, when, it, when it came out. Uh, but yeah, of course, one of those staples of the home video market. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of an underdog bit of animation, but I mean, it looks great. Um, it's not like, you, you know, a typical, uh, well, at the time, you know, you had um, Spielberg, who's producing Don Bluth films, and of course, Disney, um, and then some other major studios coming up with their own animation. Uh, Dawson, what did you think? Uh, Fern Gully. I think I'm very glad I finally took a dip in the gully. Um, I've been curious about this movie for a long time, and I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, it it doesn't feel too preachy either. I I didn't think. Oh, I didn't I didn't think so either. Um, I I didn't set a whole lot of expectations. I I knew there there was the ecological message, which is great and fine. And so I was curious how they do it, and um, oh, I was curious how they do any everything and um <laughs> i don't know how much the story is like makes sense but i don't care i kind of i don't know I, I i was just charmed i just liked watching what was happening uh and being there in the rainforest it's a very magical captivating place um i think at first when i like when i think of fairies i think of uh, sort of a medieval fantasy setting so i was like all oh, rainforest full of like bugs and stuff i don't know if that's right for fairies but no it's really really charming characters uh really charming art um mm -hmm. yeah i kind of loved it well i guess it's we'll discuss very early 90s and i i think a big part of what allowed this film to attract the sort of talent that appears is the fact that it does have a strong in a uh, special interest in mind, the, this message of um, environmentalism. Um, and that's something that appeals to a lot of celebrities. But, um, you know, Hannah, uh, how uh, familiar are you with like some of the talent? Um, you know, we all I was actually them. just looking at that. Yeah. Um, I think there is definitely, um, notable celebrities um before we were talking about it or before we started recording sorry just lost my oh, sure <laughs> um we were talking about how it's robin williams is in this movie and that's kind of like um without disney i wonder actually if disney had any sort of qualms with that because he was very interconnected in the disney world and i know that he uh put disney in their place a few times about like you won't use my voice for this 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 even with some of like the genie stuff he had very um close ties on his own rights and his own voice so that's really cool that he could independently do that as an actor and then you you have names that you wouldn't very much um connect with like a children's movie like why are Cheech and Chong voices in this movie yeah. that makes no sense to me um but I think that's really kind of a testament almost to those um like how you said the hippies you know the they're like this is like the hippie dippy like stoner my parents weren't stoners but like the stoner like kids would be like oh my gosh man like the trees and the spray paint like what 
that's so <laughs> funny to me. And then you have people that like just kind of going on this list, like Tim Curry's in this movie. Like, yes. I had no clue <laughs> until like looking at this list, and I'm like, wait, is this like a kids movie or is this like a Comedy Central like very adult special that I'm like unaware of? <laughs> I, it it really is amazing. I mean. This movie cost $24 million to make. And in the U.S., it essentially made that at the box office, $24 million, and then 30-some worldwide. So it, it didn't really have this, you know, breakout blockbuster status in theaters. But with animation, you don't really need that. Um, so, I mean, growing up, the millennial crowd, um, you know, most of us are probably very familiar with this and have seen it. You know, Cheech and Chong, you know, appeared in other Disney films. Um, they did. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Cheech Marin um, is, says Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong are the two guys and they're like a music comedic duo um, in the eight, like they're big in the 80s. Um, the, there's the one hyena, I don't know, do you remember Shenzi, Bonsai, and Ed are the in the in Lion King? I think Bonsai is Cheech. What? <laughs> I'm not Yeah. Scott. So. Okay. Wow, cool. <laughs> I've seen one. My whole Cheech. childhood is just and Whoopi Goldberg was one of those hyenas, which means yeah. she's hanging out. Whoopi and I Cheech. Love that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um yeah, the cast was di- uh, dynamite in this film. I don't think there's an actor alive who makes me happier than Tim Curry. Just, <laughs> like, what the heck? Anytime his little chin and big old mouth just shows up and grins, I... <laughs> he's yeah. perfect. So you're a big fan of fairies. I mean, who isn't a fan of fairies? Uh, but, uh, you know, Hannah, you've done a bit of cosplay as fairies. Uh, and of course... You could classify, you know, the lead character in this film, Krista, voiced by Samantha Mathis, uh, as a not just a fairy but also a pixie. <laughs> um, how how does she hold up for you as a character, Hannah? Well, truly, I've only ever really been Tinkerbell. All right. So I think I'm very interconnected in that fairy world per se, just because like I know so much about Tinkerbell. But the thing that I've learned about different um like stories written about fairies is there's literally no fairy world that is the world of the fairy odd parents the world of like this movie and the world of tinkerbell have absolutely nothing to do with them and the world of peter pan and neverland yes they interconnect that into the tinkerbell movies but it is like impossible for me to fathom some of the connections that Disney kind of forces in that realm. So truly Peter Pan's kind of its own entity too. Like all of these fairy things, like where was Queen Clarion in Ferngully? She wasn't there. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, this is, uh, yeah, in the Tinkerbell movies, it's all set in Neverland, right? Right. So it's not, it doesn't take place on earth. Ferngully, you know, I mean- there's uh, in australia i guess the major rainforest they have there is the dane tree uh is that how you pronounce it in in queensland 
the Daintree Rainforest. It's a large region of northern Australia. And that's maybe where this is supposed to be set. You know, it's a little vague. Um, the None of the characters have... Or, did anyone in this have an Australian accent? Did you notice? Uh, no, not that I... I didn't notice yeah. anyway. That yeah, didn't, about, like American accents. Yeah, it didn't bother me because like there are plenty of Americans who would work for like some, you know, co major company who would... <laughs> to burn down the forest. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of these are multinational corporations who go in and do the like forest clearing and things like that. Hopefully that's less common nowadays, especially for you know, companies originating in places like the U.S. Hopefully we know better, um, but I don't know. I mean, for a while, that was a big deal, save the rainforests. Yeah, and well, even here in the U.S., um, like last year, sorry, I keep saying like too much. Um, I haven't talked to real people. That's today. okay. So even we, um, we worked with the Eden Project, which is right here in America. I actually mm -hmm. think they're, near where Jody is, if I'm correct. And that's like, um, there's oh, like sure. a project. There's um, even in Minneapolis, there's like Hartley Nature. There's so many different things mm -hmm. now. It's like people care more, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, fairies are something that come from folklore and are heavily tied to the wilderness, uh, nature. Some people joke like the only, I, I think it was like, I mentioned this YouTuber on a previous episode. His name is Quentin Reviews. Uh, and like the thing about fairies, he, he once said is um, they're <laughs> in order for them to exist, everybody has to believe in them or something. And he was comparing it to some other phenomenon. <laughs> um, maybe it was voter fraud. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that kind of originated in a lot of popular tales that, and there are plenty of people who've claimed to see fairies and things like that. But, you know, nowadays they're the stuff of fiction and fantasy. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it, but it does represent a special sort of connection that, um, you know, life on planet earth seems to have with every other bit of life. Uh, there's the, the message from Maggi about how like the smallest seed contains the, the entirety of, uh, you know, what, I, I guess the mysteries of creation or whatever she says <laughs> about seeds. I don't know if you remember that line from the film. Yeah. I don't um, remember what she said. Okay. Out, of the, out of the smallest seed, uh, all life can grow, I think, yeah. something to that effect. The magic of creation exists within a single tiny seed. Yes, very true statement. On fairies, I think uh, the quintessential treatise on fairies is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. Um, I reread that recently, and it's amazing. I think he captures the essence of what fairy is all about um, pretty perfectly. Hmm. Um, so I check that out. Yeah. What What does he say specifically? Well, a, okay. Well, there's a, there's a brief quote here that I have. Um, the realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there. Shoreless seas and stars uncounted. Beauty that is an enchantment and an ever present peril. Both joy and sorrow as sharp as swords. And that's one of many 
Mm-hmm. That fairy contains many things besides elves and fays and dwarves and witches, trolls, giants, and dragons. It holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, the earth, and all things that are in it, tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. Mm. So fairy fairy yeah. is as broad and as deep and as wide a well of yeah, they, as you can well, kind of the, imagine. I like that symbolic connection to enchantment and um, the state of just being unencumbered by sort of earthly temporal concerns uh, and being at a place where you just, you know, as Elsa would say, you can let it go and, you know, leave your burdens behind you. And, and this is the realm of finally being able to like connect with, uh, with the life and the world around you. And I love the enchantment in this film where how Jack, no, Zach, sorry, gets brought into the fairy world and he spends all this time with this fairy gal, learns about them, their ways. Uh, and he shows her such a great time in her own territory that he knows nothing about, which is great. Um, and then, you know, sees what he's been doing and writes his wrongs. Mm-hmm. And then um, he had, so he had, taken on a whole new form of existence and he had left the human world and the city and all those things behind. But uh, then he knew that whatever his love for this world and for this person may be, he had a responsibility to reassume his true form and brought what he learned back into his land. It's a a really lovely enchantment story. Um, I, I felt this movie was strangely meandering, but in a good way, because I think I think fairy in general lends itself to a sense of uh, unstructured um, sort of whimsy, unstructured whimsy. whimsy. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it didn't bother me that there were random musical numbers or that (laughs) like characters would appear suddenly in random places and uh, at climactic moments or that, you know, he would just, well, that they were running through... uh, an endless fairyscape, you know, it's very, it's very dreamlike. And I think that's, that's great. It's fun to watch. It's fun to watch just two strangers meet and like be so fascinated and enchanted by each other that they don't even need to know. And he didn't really exactly have a whole lot to recommend him. And he met her and immediately starts lying just because he wants to get with her. Um, And then he (laughs) evolves beyond that point. Uh, fortunately, but yeah, Bill S. Preston Esquire got brought into Fairyland to spend some time with a bodacious babe. Oh, so I, great. Is this actor, Jonathan Ward, I have no idea what else he's done. Is that Bill S. Preston? No, Bill no. from Bill and Ted. Yeah, about. yeah, Bill S. Preston. I can't remember that actor's name. That Alex Winter. Alex Winter. Yes, of course. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, Hannah, what? What are your favorite elements of this film? Are, would it be like performances, the characters, uh, animation, I don't know, story? I will say I remembered it being a bit more um, magical on my VHS than I did when I, I ended up having to like re-download it on iTunes. I think this could definitely be like digitally remastered because mm. I don't think it flows with like our today's technology. You could kind of tell it was made then. Um, I loved the music just because I remembered some of the songs. You can totally tell that this was made in the early 90s. Mm. The 80s, 90s flair, like, wow, 
My Baddie has a rap. There are two rap songs in this movie. Um, I think some of the comedy is even in that kind of era um, and the color scheme. My favorite thing is probably the magical elements. I love how Krista is very strong-willed and kind of does her own thing. Like when, even when she flies to the top of the trees at the very beginning and they're like, don't go out there. And she just does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's so cool. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just like love her. Like she's, um, I don't know. Like I would totally want to be her friend. Like I know that I'm Tinkerbell, but I'm the girl that wants to be Krista instead of Tinkerbell. Also her outfit as Tinkerbell's is, is very small. And why did they do this to all of the fairies and all of the kids' movies? Like, can't we wear clothes? What's going- they, they're naturalists. <laughs> yeah. I, I could I could go on a bit about why I think they do that. Um, I love it, obviously. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's strangely innocent. These movies, like, this could be a total stoner, you know, thing. Or, like, all of the, you know, free love and stoner and save the trees. Like, there could... All that stuff can become very adult very quickly, but this managed to stay so innocent. And I I love that. Yeah. I mean, um, this was a time where anything other than a G rating was kind of a no-go for animation. Right. Um, and I think I think I didn't know that her clothes were small until now. Yeah, I well, and I think I never, I never questioned like uh, if a fairy, like a small person, is wearing small clothes, or like Tinkerbell, it, she looks like she's wearing leaves, and yeah. she also looks. I mean, she's, she's like a fairy who's fully in nature, has is fully innocent. It would be totally natural to see them not with clothes at all, but obviously you can't do that. So then, what's the next thing? You give them something Sorry. that is that is very free and um, not uh yeah. to cover you, you don't cover them up all the way you let you let their natural what do you guys think form. her clothes are actually <laughs> i was wondering that and i i, I have <laughs> i there were a couple points or there's one point where i saw her and i thought gee in any other movie i think krista would be the bad guy or the bad character her design with her her black hair and her green eyes um kind of reminded me of like evil ursula uh when she's made beautiful sort of um oh my gosh vanessa yeah Van- yeah um <laughs> and then the boy had the red hair but she couldn't have the red hair because she had the red outfit yeah, so, yeah what was her red she... outfit was it did she in a, a red panda well it seems to be your typical like shrubbery garb you know you find in <laughs> shrubbery <laughs> <laughs> bring me a shrubbery uh you know good my loins with a shrubbery the you know typical peter peter fan peter fan <laughs> peter fan forest dweller yeah outfit you know you go to the uh renaissance festival and everyone's wearing these like peter pan pants you know the skin tight pants yeah. that are made of like strips of cloth um, so it's kind of that type of thing. I mean, who knows what the material yeah, well, is. it woven fabric or is it leaf? I don't know. Well, the texture is hard to tell. I'm like looking at it right now. I feel like, I don't know. It kind of looks like leaves to me. It also kind of looks like a tomato skin. 
I know that sounds really <laughs> dumb, but like <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm re looking at this. I mean, um, I'm captivated by the kind of caveman, caveman vibe, cavewoman vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Fairy fashion is something that's you know, highly intriguing, but you know, I guess if you examine the other the the look of the other characters, they're mainly wearing like yeah, some of them have bug shells i think that they're wearing and plants her her father's kind of this rotund guy who's got like a leaf loincloth yeah so, he reminds me of the sultan he sounds, his voice sounded looks, like the sultan yeah her top is clearly fabric like material woven um because it's too shapely yeah. but then the bottom is you know shagged and ragged yeah and i mean i'm i'm genuinely curious like what other sorts of you know pursuits do the fairies have besides just like interacting with wildlife and making plants grow oh that's no they don't have vocation they don't have human they're not bound by human society and expectations and um they're not living in our our prison of of needing to labor and do toil they, do they practice culinary skills do they you know <laughs> make manufacture clothes you know i uh i'm just very curious uh i mean they're they clearly understand um cosmetics and hairstyling <laughs> yes it looks like a kind of a punk rocker from the 80s you know that's looks- funny you mentioned that because that's very classic fairy is that they're very vain um, oh. and like Tinkerbell that you see that in Tinkerbell. Um, so they would, uh, labor over their hair and, you know, they get lost gazing in the reflection in the rivers and the creeks and the gullies. Um, I think you'd find a lot of different fairies. I, I think you'd find the fairies that like love cooking and they all, you know, live in a tree and make cookies and stuff like that. Well, that's, uh, but um, Tinkerbell is very, they all have their talents and there's even a book called the fairy bake off. Like you're spot on with that. The fairy bake off? Uh-huh. I have to watch this. I don't know if it's a show, but I know that it's a book. And there's even a Tinkerbell cookbook written by the Baker fairies. Like The Great Fairy Bake Off. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Where's the Minotaur sauce? Yeah, you're spot on. That lady who was the character, like, model reference for... Um, do you remember her name, Hannah? For Tinkerbell? For Tinkerbell. Margaret Kelly, I think, is her name. Yeah, I'm surprised she hasn't published a cookbook or something. Oh my God, that'd be so cute. Um, the, the way people uh, have done this costume in real life, just to let you know, is very much fabric. It's not leaves. Yeah. Well, well obviously they're going to do fabric in real life. They just get a bunch of plastic, you know, fake leaves. Yeah, what are That's they going to do? Go to like the poinsettia factory? Like what? <laughs> There's some big leaves out there. Um, you could go to Hobby Lobby and make a plastic one. Yeah, yeah. wouldn't be quite the right. <laughs> Maybe not quite Christmas color red. So Douglas Seal was the voice of the Sultan in Aladdin, and the father in this is voiced by Neil Ross. But the voice is nearly identical. Honestly, he did a very good job at tricking me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then I I feel like. She may have been, uh, Krista's design may have been influenced by like Joan Jett. Just if you look at oh her. Oh my God, um, that is such a good comparison. Yeah, the I hate myself for loving you video. Her hair is done up just like Krista. Um, but I, I don't know, I could be, you know, 
just making that her up. Her haircut is also very edgy for like a kids movie. Yeah. Super edgy. So like and <laughs> your mom told like brush your hair so you can have a Tinkerbell bun, and then Krista's like popping off, going wild. That's she also looks it. kind of like a Vulcan from, or no, or, yeah, a Vulcan or a Romulan from Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. When her hair's wet, though, that's that's the look. <laughs> no, she she is downright sexy. Uh, oh even though God. in in none of the promotional material does she look good. I feel it's only <laughs> in the animation on screen. Really. I mean, I I, don't, I haven't seen too many promotional images but the one on amazon like is this big like graphic um when you pull up the movie this banner it's just her face and it looks like you know some sixth grader made it in photoshop it's not very good (laughs) oh my oh yeah like this this cover of the dvd oh like that's terrible (laughs) and he's surfing on a leaf i don't think he does that in the film Mm mm-hmm Batty was pointless, but great. Yeah. He did Batty because then they could cast Robin Williams. Yeah. And isn't there some Disney drama with like Robin Williams hated Disney after Aladdin um, and that Disney executives went over to Ferngully Studios and trashed the place to like threaten them to release Robin Williams to them. Have you read about this, Philip? Um, I guess the fallout with Williams would have come after Ferngully was... uh, released because aladdin was released in november of 1992 this was april um yeah i guess you know jeffrey kassenberg was famously vindictive and didn't like the idea that williams was doing another animated movie i i think he did agree to ferngully shortly before doing you know agreeing to doing aladdin but yeah he was very protective of his um likeness or you know his i guess image as an actor and yeah robin didn't want to do it because he didn't want them to use his voice to like sell toys and merchandise shamelessly and he said he'd only do it if they didn't do that and then they did do that because they're the mouse (laughs) and the mouse always wins (laughs) yeah pretty much i mean he did eventually come back to do um i mean this was after katzenberg left um but you know the oh, after um he came back to do the best of film. <laughs> jk but great film yeah i don't know this movie doesn't nearly take as you know <laughs> not, not to phrase it in such a way but like uh take advantage of robin williams improv skills quite to the degree that Aladdin does and that's course, very well said I've never been underwhelmed by a Robin Williams performance and I was in this film so that was yeah he, it was just very non sequitur and like not interesting and the character didn't c- compliment I live for this movie the most of all of his movies except for Mrs. Doubtfire really okay because I felt that he even in the rap he was rapping about pretty dark stuff this his character is also like the heart and like like i can like think one thing you can think another like it's an animated oh, movie who cares right. um but i want to know your your you know argument yeah here. i think that his character was so developed honestly maybe even more than krista and some of the other characters because he had so much to get through so he has the 
He's a fruit bat that was taken by humans. He has the radio frequency thing on his head because he was injected. He talks about being like injected with chemicals, being like shocked and having all these things, which truly is almost like advocacy uh, in a way for like the mental health community, which was in the 80s definitely at a peak of being injected with all of these different things to cure like schizophrenia and different ailments like that that are like mental I think it's like so deep um and he touches on those things while bringing it to light in like a kid's way in that rap song and I think the character brings comedy because that's why you hire Robin Williams but also such depth to um animal cruelty and like bringing an animal into a lab and the effect that it has on them and it almost because humans often can't visualize or sympathize with the situation unless they see themselves into that situation so he's taking this like fruit bat character and bringing that light of and this could be the writing too um bringing that light of all of these things do affect the animal fruit bats do have like feelings and brains and like he almost humanizes such an inhumane task where he even talks about lipstick in that song Mm. it's crazy to me yeah Yeah. i think his character is very like crucial and really pumps me up Mm -hmm. oh okay (laughs) so he he raps about the things they did to him i must have it goes by fast probably just because he was rapping because my my inter what i thought his character was was he was a bat that got like captured by scientists and they put a tracker on him so that they could study bats and then the tracker messed with his brain and then so the rest of the movie was him just being crazy yeah he raps about it in that first part but i think too i have watched this movie five billion times (laughs) so for me i got to like hear the lyrics and like learn new things and be like my gung-ho self of like don't do animal cruelty and like i love the rainforest where you're watching it for the first time, so you're not going to see all of those things. I didn't see them in but him. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw I saw them movie-wide, and then in him, I was more like, what is this character doing? Why, sure. why is he here? Well, but- it has, yeah, this has the problem in that, like, it wasn't, you know, Mencken and Ashman doing the music for, you know, this. The, the musical numbers are just a little bit dissonant. I didn't hate them. Not terrible. Yeah. No. They... <laughs> but it, it does verge on sort of the kids animation paradigm of like, oh, we just kind of have to have these obligatory musical numbers. Um, and, and this doesn't feel like the kind of animated film that needs to have musical breaks. Um, but I, I do feel like they are effectively used. And the characters that are shown singing on screen are pretty much exclusively rapping. Um, there's the one Hexus song um, that is more operatic, um, but that's maybe the only one, right? That's um, Yeah, I think there's like the two rap songs because it's Robin Williams and then the lizard does a rap song, right? Yeah, but the only non-rap song it, that is like a song That's sung by the character by a character yeah. is is the Hexus because they had they had Raffi in there. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, there's a lot of just um, regular soundtrack, you know, pop 
<laughs> tie-ins. <laughs> it was a rappy song. Haven't heard na 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 in such a long time. Yeah, Land of a Thousand Dances. Is that what that's called? <laughs> they had some just kind of generic world music from Africa and from um, Croatia, <laughs> I think, um, as part of the, the soundtrack. Um, uh, and like Avatar does something very similar with its soundtrack where it's sort of a mix of just a variety of different cultural, you know, um, indigenous cultural music from around. Yeah, the- is this the part where you say that Avatar just ripped off Rangoli? I mean, Avatar ripped off so many things wholesale (laughs) (laughs) that it can't really, you can't really fault Avatar because, you know, at least they didn't just pick one thing. (laughs) I don't know. Here's the thing, everyone rips off everything. Like Shakespeare ripped off everything else too. And like, look where that got him. Like we're still blabbing about him 400 years later. Like Shakespeare ripping things off. And that's a complicated subject. I mean, certainly he borrowed and took, oh, but. I don't know. Like Shakespeare is like the biggest scam artist in the last like billion years. Like the earth was created. Shakespeare started scamming off everyone's stores. I, I don't um, really disagree. <laughs> I mean, he just. I disagree entirely, but that's all right. More and more and more. And then you have these kind of books, Much Ado About Mean Girls, because all of these stories are the same exact stories. Shakespeare wrote in a way that no one had ever seen before. And yeah, and like all those things like those are Shakespeare. Well, his just not original. The beauty of everything. Well, I mean, yeah, a lot of his stories have a non I mean, I guess a basic archetypal premise but what he did with them was unique in a lot of ways well and even within his own work he rips off himself like all of his comedies have sort of the same through line and yet managed to be unique um yeah so and uh i wish we did have just more um uh complete like preserved writings from earlier eras but obviously we didn't have the printing press you know then so those things were harder to preserve yeah, and like are. Lion King is Hamlet. Like, there's so many things. Yeah, I, Avatar, I mean, of course, that film was just so high profile. So, of course, everybody had an opinion on it. Um, but it oh, did... Ringoli didn't have the same budget. <laughs> <laughs> you would, you wonder. Um, yeah, it's weird when a movie like Avatar is about what it's about and then is this massive billion dollar machine corporate product um and you know when they like i watched the video at one point i don't know you know if it's fake news or whatever but it seemed pretty legit and like and well researched about how to develop the world of avatar they wanted to create this musical sound that was completely inhuman and borrowed from like literally every human culture to make something completely new in their language and they hired all these like music anthropological music experts to make it and then James Cameron was like, nah, that sounds bad. And then just let, you know, traditional orchestra symphony do the heavy lifting. Well, it was James Horner. And I think he was James Horner's playing. amazing. I'm sure he would have been involved from the beginning, no matter what, yeah. you know. But, like, there wasn't nearly as much of that new, completely unique. Mm-hmm. Is that my... So, someone's I got was, a I think so. uh, heater. Uh, normally, <laughs> my big noise is the stupid dog that's across the street because the owners are irresponsible. But that's my big noise. That normally. The three podcasters and the big noise. 
Um, <laughs> but like who's doing it? <laughs> yeah, this is Silvestri doing the soundtrack. Uh, and, and I like the score here. Um, but yeah, like it doesn't quite have that same Broadway quality that, you know, those the mega hit Disney films from this era, era did. Um, and, and so I think when you have Batty start, what's his full name? Ba uh, Batty Coda? Uh, Coda? <laughs> yeah. 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 They were like 90s Coda. music videos where it's just, okay, time for the music. <laughs> yeah. So then the camera just focuses on one person and then zooms in and out on them while they rap. It, it's not a opposite of the Broadway number. You know who should have been in this? Will Smith. What's that? Oh, Will Smith. Should, so, he would have been a way like, better. He would have been so mm. good mm. in this movie. Yeah. Not way better. I shouldn't say way better, but I think he. I think he fit. He would fit Batty very well. Yeah. I think he would too, which is funny because he was the genie. I think <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> in that, and and how weird is that? That Robin Williams and Will Smith have like a similar type sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he would have brought in something completely different to it. I would have maybe cast him more as like the the lizard. Maybe oh, Tone Loke. I love Tone. <laughs> I forgot but about him already. Cameo. <laughs> I, yeah. But that was the other rap sequence. Um, yeah. And then yeah. Batty says, he goes, humans, humans, what do those taste like? And she's trying to get him not to eat Zach. And he's like, <laughs> tastes like chicken. Like Batty's like trying to talk him right into it. <laughs> I love that part. He is a bit of a subversive character. I, I do uh, appreciate that. Um, he, uh, I wonder, cause I mean, this movie, it has that very metaphysical root and it, um, of course incorporates tons of symbolism and metaphor. And so I, I just kind of can't help, but like want to read into all the various names and, you know, decisions made here and like, what is the symbolic significance of all these various things i mean there's a volcano they refer to as mount warning <laughs> it's a little on the nose <laughs> i thought it was mount warney uh i think like the warning. subtitle said mount warning <laughs> oh. i don't know i don't know but mount close enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah and the i mean i kind of like how the hexus character i mean i've got all kinds of things to say about him you know the toxic horror picture show he's just a sweet band wood sprite um but he wasn't just some manifestation of the human's intervention in the rainforest he he was like this demonic entity from ancient times so i kind of like how they're not just directly associating this, the human activity with this, you know, did not demonic force. I mean, they certainly well could have, but it is kind of cool that, no, this is a much more like primal spirit. Uh, and he probably does represent like fossil fuels and the decay, the destruct, you know, uh, fossil fuels are derived from um, decomposed biological material and how that can have destructive effects if you know used improperly i actually i think that's one of was one of the key selling points that really brought me into the world and didn't make me roll my eyes at the ecological message was because they set everything up as in nature there is a battle between destruction and creation 
um, mm -hmm. and that there is an, uh, well, quote unquote, evil force out there that is behind destruction. And it's to be found in nature. Uh, nature is destructive. Nature is full of wrath and it is impartial and um, uh, full of tragedy and harm. Um, and humans were once just a part of that cycle in nature, but then humans start to participate more and more in the destruct be humans became a part of the destructive force it's not a it's not a story of the battle between nature and humans it's a story about a battle within nature that then humans unlocked a power to encourage the forces of destruction and that we need to reset i love i love the imagery I, I i thought it was maybe kind of silly that this big evil bad guy and then guy goes into the car and turns it off and that mm -hmm. kills him. Uh, but it was so it's it was such a simple, beautiful poetic message. It was like, oh, like, just turn it off. Like, how do human how do humans stop this? How do we how do we stop the destruction? Just turn it off. And I, I like, know that's not like a probably a, a palpable real life solution, but I've grown more and more, you know, dissatisfied with cities. I love how he talked about he described the city. Oh, I live in a city, there's no trees there. And she's like, that's horrible. How can you stand it? And I'm like, yeah, girl, you tell me. I can't stand <laughs> it. I, I wish I could talk to the trees in the forest and live like you and you know, wear not much. That would be fun. But um, yeah, so I don't, you know, there's... What's that? She's talking, asking him if he can feel the pain of the tree. Yeah. And so that, it's a very, that was a very beautiful way of describing the disconnect um, that humans have have built for themselves. And... Uh, so it's an attractive idea that we could just like, what if we just stopped? What if we stopped doing all of this harmful stuff? Um, can we still have nice things? Um, you know, I don't know. It's worth looking at, I guess. Um, but it was yeah. it was appealing to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, fossil fuels were such a big thing during the 20th century, but now we're kind of able to harness things just so much more efficiently that um, I think we will reach a point where it hopefully tips the other way. I mean, Hannah, what, and what are your thoughts? Uh, one last thing, I because I um, noticed that, uh, like, well, yeah, you just said it's about it's about harnessing. How do we harness the forces of nature um, and fossil fuels? The internal Tolkien again on fairies famously hated the internal combustion engine. He thought it was like the greatest evil man had ever wrought, um, and he famously loved trees. Um, and so I'm with that, down with that. Um, but I noticed that like, yeah, the fairies were also, they were manipulating nature. The, the grandma was like moving the plants around and the mushrooms and making the trees bend and spreading them apart and like causing growth. So there was a certain stewardship that um, the sentient creatures were still exhibiting over nature, but it was so much more in harmony. And so, yeah, I think um, humans are more than capable of finding progress and harmony at the same time but anyway hannah sure um what was your question philip just uh human greed and sort of the you know modern interests that don't necessarily acknowledge the, the need of preservation and conservation um you know how, how do we uh, how do we fix that <laughs> sure i mean i'm not like an environmental scientist um fun fact before i was a theater major i thought i was going to be um an environmental like um like lawyer um that nice. was something that i was like super interested in so now it's like i'm kind of distanced but still interested um or like political sciences like i was all over the board mm -hmm. um <laughs> i think um so 
right now, truly, places like Forever 21 and all these super fast fashion brands, as much as we are looking to be trendy, I think thrifting is more of a trend. And I think COVID has really played a part in what is necessary for me to do to survive and what is necessary for me to do to buy. And even with like Marie Kondo, like I don't think in the 80s, Marie Kondo would have been so... Um, so much of a big deal in like minimalizing your life and kind of like decluttering and living on what you need and sustainability is more of like a trend now. Yeah. I think when this movie was made, so like 1992, obviously they were working on it before then because that was like the release. The late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot more pollution happening and a lot less care. And even though the world thrives more on technology now. I think it is very scary because we're getting to a point where all of this destruction is already done. So all we can do is combat that. And like there are trees getting shut down and or shut down, um, <laughs> knocked down in like big cities and all of these different fuel types and whatever. But I think this generation, I'm like a millennial generation. So the generation below us, which is Gen Z, has the reputation of kind of like not taking that crap. And I think the millennials are kind of like leading the way in um, sustainability where our parents per se aren't as used to that. So future generations are just interested in being more sustainable. Um, thrift shopping is such a trend right now, kind of creating your own things, um, sewing even. I think we're ready to take that step, but I do think it's generational. So it's going to take a few generations to in turn kind of shift that power. And I think there's things being introduced like um, like the Green New Deal, a lot of different things like that, that even that being in the talks of our politics and kind of like on the table today wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. That would have been outlandish. And like some people think it's outlandish now, but far less. Yeah, um, and to comment on I think well, it's yeah, uh, so interesting. The that sustainability to mention Marie Kondo, how she wouldn't have been a thing in the '80s, or like minimalizing. Like when would minimalizing have been a part of someone's goal? And before the Industrial Revolution, it wouldn't have been at all. I mean, your common average person would have had would have not been interested in minimalizing because they didn't have much. I mean, human beings have not had much historically. We, we didn't have mass produced goods. Everything was homemade, homespun, rustic. And um, even so the, so the industrial revolution introduced mass materialism and consumerism on a level like don't be materialistic has always been a virtue across humanity and across cultures. Um, but only the very rich could afford to have a lot of gain or have a lot of stuff. But then the Industrial Revolution introduced, it very recently introduced the idea that even your average common person could just amass mass produced stuff. And I'm <laughs> glad that, you know, and, but it took until probably the middle of the 20th century before people were really starting to amass like just great, great amounts of good. And so it does give me hope that, you know, because people, when people, if people didn't have much for so long, the idea of getting more, like, oh my gosh, I can have all of these cool things now. Like my parents didn't have, they didn't have a TV. They didn't have, they couldn't go out and buy nice clothes. They had to, you know, it was all hand-me-downs or they had to make their own stuff. But so we've got this amazing materialistic world that's just pumping out all this stuff. 
And 50 years later, we realize like, whoa, we've gone way too far and we need to put a, a hold on this. And we do need to have a, you know, about face. And so I, I, I love the, the minimalizing. I mean, it's, and it's just, it, it's such a, I mean, people, they know like in their head, they're surrounded by all this stuff. And it's like, I mean, it causes stress. It's mentally fatiguing. I'm not, I'm not speaking very eloquently on that aspect of it right now, but you know, nature is out of balance and the human mind is out of balance and human <laughs> hearts and society. And um, I think that was all I had to say about that. Unless it was like- Hannah. Ringo really struck a chord in all of us. We're like ready to go. Well, well yeah, I mean <laughs> like, no, I just, uh, oh shoot, no, I forgot. Have you seen oh. Tron, Hannah? I have not seen all of Tron, but I was one of those kids that played VMK, if that makes sense. So I know the world of Tron. Yeah, it, um, yeah, I got a lot of similar vibes from this. And partially due to the fact that the uh, director, Bill Croyer, well, was, I think, one of the lead effects animators on Tron, or that was one of his kind of, early breaks in animation he's credited as like the um computer effects choreographer <laughs> in, in in tron um and i mean this movie incorporates a lot of computer imagery as well something like forty thousand frames involve um like computer elements um and it it does showcase a lot of new kind of um, flashy techniques that are reminiscent of like, you know, what um, rock and rule was trying to do with its cyberpunk um, aesthetic. And yeah, but also Tron being set in a computer world and um, just being all about the symbiosis of like humans and machines and how that is sort of like a, a life cycle um it it is i think analogous to the human relationship with nature and you know in that movie you know a guy gets shrunken down in the computer world and in this movie you know a guy gets shrunk down to uh <laughs> into the fairy world um just some Both of these surface tales. level yeah yeah you shrunk the kids <laughs> that was around the same time yeah <laughs> Um, they ride an ant in that movie. That's so legendary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I love, they did like a Disney, I'm not sure what it was, but I, I was that spoiled little kid. We used to go to Disney every year for Christmas when I was little, not very often. If we didn't go for Christmas, we went often. Um, and there was some sort of like exhibit when they, cause they used to have like the Bugs Life thing at Disney. And then they had like a special honey and shrunk the kids and you could pretend to ride the ant. You're kidding me. Pretty sure. Unless I'm like delusional, but pretty sure I will find you a picture. Why would they ever get rid of that? That sounds. <laughs> they ruined <Yeah>. everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They used to have like a whole air area playground thing. Where you on... just felt small. Yeah. That, that's the best. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't want that? Yeah, like I'm not really sure if it's like me being crazy and now I said it on a podcast, but I'm pretty sure that is a childhood memory. That I, have. I don't think you're crazy. Uh, and even if it was a dream, it's a very good memory. Uh, that that, that movie is crack. Just being uh, giant like foods that you just like scoop your hand into and, you know, start eating. That Oreo, right? It was a giant Oreo in the film. 
Yeah. Right here, the Honey I Shrunk the Kids set adventure at Disney World. <sighs> there it is. Okay. It's real. Yeah, I, I I don't know if that ant, they probably had the statue of like an ant, but um, whether it moved, that'd be cool if it was an animatronic. I, uh, Honestly, I, I don't know. Um, I recently rewatched Ant-Man too, so, um, but I haven't seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in a long time. I mean, it's been maybe a decade. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it <laughs> yeah, a lot of oh fun. Oh my word. <laughs> <laughs> we need to quickly like spiral Dawson back to the early 2000s to go ride the ant. <laughs> I well, that's what YouTube is for, so we can all just sit on our couches and live vicariously through other people. <laughs> I kind of hate that I can just Google, like, um, random castle in Europe that I'm remotely curious in, and there's some guy on YouTube going, so here I am on my tour through the castle, and over here you see um, that's the Bailey, yep. and uh, there's walls, pretty big, it's like, Ah, now I've seen it, but I haven't seen it because I haven't there. I wasn't. I didn't smell it or feel it. I'm just. I'm. I'm seeing it with through your stupid eyes, and and it's. Ah. Well, I think that does sort of democratize things a little bit because the fact that you can just sort of vicariously experience these destinations via YouTube means that it probably is cheaper <laughs> to actually do these things for for real. Um, so it it helps you know, just the yeah, average yeah. person to maybe. That's a, I wonder if a tourism beyond COVID has been affected uh, by something like that. Like, have we seen numbers drop in visiting famous landmarks because uh, people can just do it on the YouTube and would that bring prices down? Well, I kind of think not. I mean, if anything, it's like free advertising for so much of these places. Yeah, I think like when your favorite YouTuber goes to like Yosemite, every, all these like kids that have no clue are like, what's a Yosemite? Like, what's here a, I yes. Oh, speaking Grand of Yosemite. Canyon? Yeah, there'll be some idiot thinking like they can skateboard down the Grand Canyon or something. <laughs> Dude, look at that half pipe. Watch me half pipe the Grand Canyon, bro. Dave, David Dobrik will like give them a Tesla to drive down the Grand Canyon. Dear. Oh, my dear. Uh, but you mentioned Yosemite. Uh, and actually, back on the, uh, I was what I forgot to say during the, um, like, talk about what do we do and, you know, conversation, con, con, oh. <laughs> conservation, how important that is. I'm very thankful that even, you know, from the beginning in 19, in the 1900s, like in the, the peak and or like the early stages and the peak of the industrial. Well, no, not the early stages, but the peak of the industrial revolutions when things were getting really grimy in factories and all that stuff that people even back then, like knew and foresaw how out of control that they can get. And I'm so thankful for Theodore Roosevelt's administration and all the conservationists that just looked out over the beautiful landscapes of America, the United States at least, and said like, yeah, there's so, we can't touch so much of this. And they preserved millions of acres. Um, and that the voices who are like, now this is all just the free real estate. Let's, let's take it, you know, <laughs> let's use it. Um, that there were voices who put a stop to that even back then. That's it, that was that. <laughs> um, I saw a screening of Tron that was hosted by uh, the creator, Steven Lisberger, he got up on stage and um, he referred to the film as like a sleek, low octane blockbuster. Like a lot of movies nowadays, they feel so... The original Tron, <laughs> he described as a sleek blockbuster? Well, 
you know, so, so many major movies nowadays feel like they're just so labored and like they're really chugging, they're really pushing the RPMs and just burning mm. a lot of carbon. Um, whereas movies like Tron, like they really, you know, s- send you for a ride, but they don't feel like they're, you know, burning all this crazy amount of energy to, um, uh, you know. My brain has to burn a lot of energy to stay awake <laughs> during Tron. It has, yeah. I have to labor to remain in my seat watching the screen during Tron. Mm. Um, no, I, that's not every time wreck it ralph every time just the first one you fall asleep every time every Whoa. time Ralph puts me right to bed we've all got that movie um i i mean and, and there's not yeah obviously there are so many wonderful things about tron that make it worth remembering but as a whole as a movie um i i'm I saying tron. it only subject well of course you do philip you <laughs> <laughs> philip's like we, i love all the animations that's like one of my top five franchises <laughs> <laughs> another movie that i do, well i've never seen tron but a movie i don't like and i know i have an inkling that philip likes this movie i might have even asked him before the worst animated movie wallace and gromit and i know that that makes philip crack in half i love i mean i don't know what wallace and gromit are you referring to because there's a lot of wallace and gromits wasn't the first feature like that were rabbit movie was the curse of the were rabbit the first feature and the uh, others yeah. were just shorts because it's I a tv chicken run like i don't like okay oh, oh come on <laughs> no. I that animation style i oh. understand that I, yeah. I their eyes are too close together which is even a line in chicken run but yeah. um it's <laughs> i know i know i'm, so I know. I'm gonna so get kicked fun. up the podcast every time they go oh like that just guy die. It's very okay. British. I'm like, sorry, but don't we had the chickens in the kids movie. Stop it. <laughs> Who had the chickens in the kids movie? Chicken run. Oh, what? What? That's why they're running. They're all getting killed by these farmers. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So me, the hippie that I am, screaming like, stop. <laughs> I mean, I don't like it when people die, but I enjoy. Yes, I- horror movies and action movies and <laughs> chicken run is one of the greatest escape movies of all time like the idea of the the goal is that there's this group of prisoners and they have to get out and the uh, the heist that they have to pull to get out it's it's such a trip come and on you don't love when they go into the pie making machine like is that not one of the greatest like dungeon i will obstacle? say it has very creative elements um, and it has a good play on he, the human world themes, mm-hmm. like realistic themes. I just really don't like that kind of animation. I, and I, I, I can't. I know, I know. I can't but tell you you're factually like, wrong. He hasn't talked in two minutes because I just ruined his life. <laughs> no, no. Because you can, you can have an objective argument over like whether the film is good or not, but whether you dislike sure. the way it looks, that I can't fault you for that. <laughs> and like, it. I think that's like something that like, you guys definitely have more animation like knowledge than I do. It's just like, I watch it, I'm like, ew, like why, yeah. why do they look like Play-Doh? Like that's annoying to me, it's unbelievable. Uh, then can I very quick get your perspective? Because Jillian and I finally, we watched, so she, I showed her Into the Garden Wall and she fell in love and she wanted to watch it again. But so then we started, we watched the first like four episodes of Adventure Time. What's your take on Adventure Time animation? Yay or nay? I something. guess I'm not really like a 
effect. I've actually never watched Adventure Time, but I know what it looks like. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'd rather watch that than Chicken Run. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I guess. I, I mean, chicken. The the work that goes into making Chicken Run happen is just. It's so. It's. It, and like that's awesome so like those people are clearly like great at their craft like that was a huge movie for me like i know that movie and i don't like that and i know that like my nephews were the right era for that movie so like they enjoyed that movie <laughs> i personally just don't like that animation style fair enough but i guess i haven't watched adventure time to tell you like if i like it or not but like i've seen like a commercial for adventure time yeah well philip you find it off-putting right um, kind of, but I think it complements the storytelling. That's what I found sort of too. Yeah, that was very smart, actually. Like, you have to have the right animation. Like, like if Frozen had the animation of Over the Garden Wall, it would be a totally different movie. Yeah. No, that's like, an interesting. I the style of the film and like the story and the audience that they're looking for. Hmm. Yeah. Like Elsa needed to have five bajillion hairs. Mm. <laughs> That's what needed to happen. <laughs> it's it's hard. Well, not be two triangles stacked on top of each other. I love the simplicity <laughs> of that. Can you imagine if Elsa looked like them? <laughs> There's a world in which that could have happened. I mean, that that look I is very. I hate wearing that outfit. Because it's a gnome costume. Like... And so Elsa, they could have put Elsa in a gnome hat. That would have been culturally relevant. God, we need this well, you get all these, you know, problematic controversies where, you know, the MRA crowds start screaming when She-Ra, you know, the new series comes out and like she's not sexy enough or whatever. So, I mean, there's there's a trend towards, you know, desexualizing some of these characters, which is not a bad thing, but it can be unpopular. Well, Ferngully would have gotten smacked with that <laughs> if it was released today. There's a place for that. I and a crop top and a mini skirt. It's like Yeah. Or this Mandalorian character who has ex feature accentuating armor even a little bit, like ticked someone off apparently. I, I find that controversy so inane that I'm not even gonna go looking for who's having that argument, but yeah. Um, how about we all just like tell the stories we want to tell and then we make our characters look the way we want to look and we let the audience decide what they like. No, that armor looked boss. Um, and oh, Katie Sackoff, she's well into her What's 40s, her I name? think. But... Never mind. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it just sounds silly. It's a silly sounding name. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. How do you... Spell her. I'm trying to find her on either. There might be like a, you know, like Sakov or something somehow, just so it's not sack off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, edit Katie. This out. Edit this actually out. said it wrong. I would die. Well, I'm just double checking now because I don't want to. That's probably it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With two anyway, E's. Moving on back to, back to Zach and Ferngully. <laughs> Okay, she she's um she turned forty in April, so wow. Um, but I I thought she makes for a great Mandalorian. I don't know. I haven't seen the episode yet. So. Okay, I can't yeah. wait. Especially having been like the voice of that character from the animation. I mean, that's that's very impressive. They did that. Mm -hmm. No way. 
All right. I'm not familiar with the character either at all. So, but um, mm -hmm. I'm excited to find out if justice was done to the character by the actual actor. That'd be one of the first times that's probably ever happened, right? They take an animated character's voice actor and throw him into the live action. Uh, for a major character, that's the first time I'm pretty sure in Star Wars. Um, and they're probably not doing that with Ahsoka Tano because that's going to be Rosario Dawson. Um, right. I don't know if they've even confirmed that, although there have been just so many rumors that she's portraying, you know, Ahsoka in Mandalorian. Um, but yeah, I, I would be very surprised if it were anyone else. Um, and, and yeah, she was played by a different actress. She was played by Ax Ashley Eckstein in uh, the animated shows. Um, I don't know. Yeah, they might do that with like Sabine maybe. Uh, um, she was another Mandalorian chick who will probably show up in the Mandalorian uh, and they could get the actress who played her, I'm sure, but. How old is she? Cause Sabine would be old. Uh, no, well, Sabine was, th that was five years before A New Hope. Um, well, and wait, no, five years Sabine after... was in the Clone Wars. So she was 25 years before. Um, you may be Hope. thinking of the Duchess Satine. I was am. the oh, leader. Sabine Satine. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sab Sabine was in Rebels. And she's related to Satine and Bo-Katan, Katie Sackhoff's character. Did they name the Duchess Satine because Satine was Ewan McGregor's love interest in Moulin Rouge? But not love it. She was the main character, oh. I think. They both were. They were both primary protagonists. But yeah, Ian I, McGregor and uh, Nicole Kidman. Her name was Satine. And then Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan. So Obi-Wan falls in love with Satine. I find that hmm. fun and interesting. I don't know if it was intentional. I've never seen Moulin Rouge. It's amazing. Philip, you need to watch that. You make me watch so many cartoons. Like, watch me wander. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Hannah. Yep. Very well. Um, hmm, what else can I talk about? Well, oh, I was going to bring up lightsaber <laughs> crystals. Uh, I mean, of course, we would talk about crystals on the Fern Gully episode. But, uh, like, the, the fairies, they switch between, like, having blue auras and green auras. And I wondered if there was any significance to that. Oh, I actually don't know. And why when they're like magically like running on the water, is it green and not? Hmm. I hope it's one of those. Oh, that like that scene where they were jumping in the little like webbing. I love that part. Yeah, I love it too. It, I like I want to know if it means something or why or if it's just supposed to look pretty. But it's really satisfying how they it fills the holes and it's like, entire thing too. Like not just a little, like it's yeah, all. it's all yeah. Uh, I hope the colors are just uh, like just a like an aesthetic thing because yeah. that's what I think lightsaber should be. I think Jedi should be able to go. Oh, I want a green one because I like green. And I want a blue one because I like blue. Not, I am a Jedi sentinel. So that means I fight with the kata style and I use a limited range of force abilities for defense. And uh, my lightsaber is held backwards and it's yellow. Like, I hate that. Drives me <laughs> I mean, there's, there's this vague association between the color blue and the use of the force in kind of a more just raw physical way and and the color green and the use of the force in a sort of contemplative 
philosophical way. So um, that's not necessarily a one-to-one parallel to... If, if it had been switched, if Luke started with a green lightsaber and then when he became Luke Skywalker the Black, the master, and, he had, and then had a blue lightsaber, I think that would have just as equally made like sense in people's minds. Like, oh yeah, green is the cover of a, of a noob and a rookie and someone who's, but then blue is measured and wise and calm like the water, you know? But I can also see it the other way. Blue is, blue is like just a, a happy boy color maybe. And then green is like sophisticated somehow i don't know because in my brain I, I see the blue a padawan lightsaber and the green master lightsaber from like phantom menace and that you see uh from a new hope to return of the jedi and that makes sense it just makes sense that the master would have a green lightsaber but it also makes complete sense that it, it wouldn't have any association whatsoever so that's why i, I kind of hope it's preference but yeah a lot blue, of people insist it's not preference and that the colors do have meaning and blue. i reject them has a youthful association because like newborn babies have bright blue eyes for the first couple of weeks. That's yeah. Okay. And, um, but like a, a green, you know, someone uh, who's a rookie that is referred to as green, I think just because in certain occupations, you know, that involved like motion sickness, for example, you know, the newbies would get, you know, sick, you know, if they were a pilot or maybe a cowboy or a rancher or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, that's why, I, oh, sailors especially. I, I was, I oh, yeah. surprised if, uh, well, that's what I, that's one of the things I love about color theory is that like it, it goes a lot of different ways depending on context. Um, and yet then, but there still are, like there's always going to be a connotation, but in different contexts, it's different. I love it. Color theory is great. I don't know a whole lot about it. I know a little. That's great. All right. Um, uh, and any problems with this movie that stood out? Um, like it, it doesn't have a tight story, tight story structure. And again, like that didn't, I just, I wasn't bothered. I, whatever. Yeah. Um, like the ignition key thing. Like I, it made sense that Tony and Ralph couldn't have just, you know, switched it off because they they were so freaked out by the reveal of hexus they just ditched oh, the machine you know the oh, leveler they were in there and, and left it running um yeah yeah they should have turned it off uh but I, <laughs> but well because they could they see him could they see hexus i think they did they saw like the face yeah okay um i mean just jumping out of your moving force cutting machine it's fine um yeah. I was I, I was very glad he came back to life. And like his being, so like how are they going to know? Right. Right. Um if if they turned off the machine and and he died and that was the end of it, I was about to laugh my butt off and like <laughs> hate the movie. But then he he did come back and he's like, "Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not bound to this. You need to do some cool fairy magic. You need to lock me in a tree again. I'm not just going to like, because his life, clearly he existed outside of the machine. So even though it like helped him regain strength, it didn't make sense that he was then and like to it. Tony and Ralph maybe didn't notice that their machine was acting strangely. They probably just thought, oh, hey, she's really humming along today. Uh, we're making extra time. <laughs> you know, we're going to meet our quota, you know. 
Yeah. Oh, Fern Gully. Uh, he's the voice of the radio says, "Go and destroy Fern Gully." Or Tim Curry says, "Go and destroy Fern Gully," <laughs> and they're like, "Okay." Would yeah. they know that Fern Gully is the name of this particular acre of rainforest? I don't know how that works. I think it's so. They probably yeah. don't even know the name of like any of the trees they're knocking down. Like they don't I, need to know. Oh, right. fine, they don't know. Yeah, so I think you I think you could nitpick so much to the point that it's you're not nitpicking anymore. Like you're actually addressing you know flaws. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't looking for them. I I don't and I I don't really want to sit down with this movie and look for that kind of a thing because the general sweep of it. What's that? We can I would watch, watch it. Again. Yeah, right. But the the general sweep and the feel of it, which I think I think if if any story can get away with being uh, with having like gaps in logic, a fairy story can. But. Sure. Especially one where she has cool hair and like a cool outfit. And she's super hot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> there's just no denying it. I'm sorry. No. I mean, here's the thing I actually knew that was going to be a thing. And I wonder, like, who she was modeled after. Did they, did you say that, Philip? Said Joan just, Jett, right? Said Joan Jett, right? That's speculation. Oh. Yeah, I which, of, which, which of the boys is best? Fairy boy or dude boy? I thought they were both um, kind of lame Zach people. <laughs> is much more my type. I don't mm. think either of them are cute. But like, I don't know. I think the fairy guy is just kind of like expecting her to date him. And he's like kind of a tool. Yep, 100%. Like, I think like he's so rude. And he's like, you're spending more time with her than me. And it's like. It's clear you're not in a committed relationship, so sit down. Yeah, and it's clear that she only sees you as maybe yeah. a friend because you're so lame to hang out with that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, the he's rude one. to like Batty, he's rude to Zach, he's rude to everyone. So it's like, why are you even in this movie? Oh yeah, he's the Coco on character or the, the guy in Avatar. There's the, the brother. I, I reject the outsider. I'm the man of my tribe, Yar, you know, and. So. There you go, Philip. Yeah, it's a pretty standard arch archetype. Um, <laughs> the yeah, um, the, the male characters. Favorite... Christian Slater is great. I don't know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I wonder. Uh, my I wonder what my favorite story of this archetype is. The um, foreigners foreigners brought into a strange magical place. Uh, was doing a bad thing, learns their customs, walks away, learning with renewed enlightenment. I think Last Samurai is awesome. Um, Avatar is definitely not my favorite. This one was super charming. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We I haven't seen... All the listeners, if you're listening to this, tell us what's your favorite. Because <laughs> I... this spectrum is huge. It's so huge. Fall into that category. A lot of people would probably say Dances with Wolves. I haven't seen it. I know that that's a classic, so... I don't know. White savior, no. <laughs> well, it, that can that can hap uh, happen, obviously, but like that, there this this archetype is is broader than that, fortunately. So, so it's honestly huge. Like there's billions, I'm sure, stories. Sute, I think, was the character from Avatar. If you remembered that, no, I, holy I, cow! <laughs> hold it up. Um, but some people have love Avatar. That that the crowd that came out of Avatar who like 
had depression because Pandora wasn't real and they couldn't like live in that world. And then who like started Navi communities and dressed up like them. I will say that is one of the most magical worlds in the Disney parks to me now. Like oh, the you seen River it? Journey, like hmm. the ride, hmm. so magical. Whoa. I I dig it. I mean, it's fine. I it's not my favorite movie in the world, <laughs> but it's fun. <laughs> what the hell? No, I I've never been to uh, Pandora at Disney and, World. I'm yeah. talking about Avatar the movie, right? I don't oh. like, I, I think I could, regardless of whether I love the movie or not, I would still love to see the Pandora world. I think that could be. Yeah, that's good. Jody's favorite ride is um, Flight of Passage, which I think is really, I actually didn't love Flight of Passage the first time I went on it because I wasn't expecting all the scents and I'm like a little sensitive to scents. So I'm like, holy, like Disney's trying to kill me. Like, what does that smell? Um, it is very immersive. I love the Navi River journey more, but I'm that Disney rider where like, I don't need to be like, you know, riding around on like the avatar. I'd rather like sit in the boat and look at the pretty things. Yeah. Oh, that sounds magical. I do love boat rides. Magic of Disney. Oh, we got to go back. Oh, oh, Prince Caspian might be my favorite in that archetype. Just throwing that out there. Um, yeah. If you're yeah, it's fun. Um, the tell marines yeah the all the humans you know they wipe out the talking animals and everything beautiful and good and they're like oh yeah there were these horrible monsters that we conquered and destroyed hundreds of years ago but then the prince learns the truth from the old wizard who's like no no the land was once beautiful and full of magical talking beasts and creatures right. and so t- you can bring them back top so five uh top five 2d girl crushes i think and i <laughs> this I list not... keeps changing for you very well, rapidly and folks. i don't even know <laughs> If there's anyone from like Japanese anime that makes the list, even though there probably would be if I really sat down and thought about it. But Olivier from uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, Captain. Which the, one is she? The oh, the commander. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Armstrong, no. Olivier Armstrong, right? Mm, What's I, like, I like the other one better. The the guy, the chick who is the um, she's always working with Mustang. Um, oh, Hawkeye. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like probably Katara would probably be on my top five Um, and and this is just 2D Um, Ellen Wee or Elan Wee um, she made it on your list well you're welcome Uh, for showing you the movie Angel Angel from Rock and Roll okay Um, gosh Going on. Oh, Esmeralda. I'm not going to do this list. I'm not. No, gonna no, do no. That's list. fine. Well, I'm curious. I'm and I'm. I'm no. But <laughs> Esmeralda. Anna, do you, do list? you should do a list if you want. And uh, <laughs> I have a list. And Krista. No. So so there. You're welcome for the movie or whatever. Dawson just said. <laughs> yep. You're well right. <laughs> um. Do you ha- we well we ranked the Disney princess princes didn't we once or we did? oh maybe like way way back when oh maybe we- princesses. We ranked the princesses, yes. And in and just terms of characters. We Eric didn't rank my Disney prince though for sure. Eric? Hmm. Ariel was always my favorite princess. And then like he fit my bill. So I was like, sure, awesome. But I've never been like that obsessed. Honestly, when I was younger, I always wanted to like sneak and like know all the big kid things. So I would watch movies like Chicago when my parents weren't home. Cause like, yeah. So I like, I thought like Richard Gere was hot. Like I passed up all the cartoons. I was like, oh my gosh, like age 11, not knowing what a sugar daddy was, was like, oh my God, Richard Gere. Like that's a cute old guy. Like, I don't know. I just, 
imagining like fifth grade you walking into school and talking to your friends about like oh, Richard Gear and then, <laughs> like the teacher going, "What did I just hear?" Come out of and I went to private Catholic school, but nice. um, yeah, I like I loved like Chad Michael Murray and um, Jesse McCartney. I can't really think of any cartoon crushes. I guess Eric from The Little Mermaid. He's fun. He's fun. Or like Aladdin. Yeah. That I best. I have an ex-boyfriend that, well, yeah, that kind of looks like Aladdin. Nice. Nice. They're yeah. sad. We haven't ranked princes. Um, and yeah, we, we did the princess episode back in the day. Chad has a great video ranking the princess as warriors, which prince is the best warrior. Um, it's a great video. Yeah. Um, we I might be tapped had out. a lot of fun talking about Fern Gully, the last rainforest uh, movie that didn't necessarily need a subtitle, but it works. Uh, 20th Century Fox distributed it. It was kind of cool how like the thunderclap at the beginning sounded like the fanfare <laughs> for the logo. Um, you know, they're, they're playing around with some cool iconography there and um i wonder if this is now like a disney movie technically <laughs> because uh disney owns fox of course um but that could oh boy. be complicated because this was it was basically so an indie movie to pixie hollow what's that kristen to pixie hollow like that would be the ultimate scam to like it would be so hard to meld these worlds together though there would have to be like mm -hmm. some kind of crazy magic that was even more yeah. random than blue pixie dust like well in the witcher there's the conjunction of the spear the spheres where two wholly separate worlds cross over and then impart and then fuse i guess basically yeah it's so that could happen a fairy fusion or a fairy war no! the, fern, the fern gully fairies I... v pixie hollow <laughs> fern gully versus pixie hollow i will say krista would probably beat the crap out of tinkerbell even though she's sassy like krista's like taking down the environment and like tinkerbell like she like accidentally released the thistles she like literally is always like kind of a mess but i hasn't, love hasn't she been a pirate though um no so well, in the there's a movie called The Pirate Fairy. That is a wow, well, we're getting like so off topic. That mm -hmm. is Zarina is the pirate fairy and Tinkerbell has to kind of like save her from herself and the pirates. Um and she's very like intertwined with the pirates, but she's never I don't think been a pirate. Herself. Does she take up the sword? <laughs> no. No, never hold a sword. Okay. So this has been a longer episode, but it's <laughs> fine because the governor of Minnesota is kind of putting the state back into shutdown mode. So people have. So we'll have so much more time for podcasts. Yeah. I still got to work. Um, any final thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. From any of you guys, final thoughts. Good time. <laughs> Find your fairy. Yeah. Awesome. I'm. I have loved this movie forever. I'm so excited that you guys liked it and that we talked about it on here. I will definitely be passing this movie along um, to my future generations. Um, <laughs> like I'm getting old, but like I'll figure it out. <laughs> um, I think it is a must see for everyone and definitely like a forgotten should be favorite of our generation. 
It's very good. Uh, surprise appearance from Robin Williams. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out just for his classic improv comedy style. <laughs> um, and yeah, he comes in clutch on multiple occasions, just like the uh, Mandalorians from the latest episode. <laughs> um, characters keep getting bailed out by Batty. Um, let's see. Hmm. Time to bail out of this episode here where you can find the Thodcast at Thodcast.com, uh, at Thodcast on Twitter and Instagram. Um, where can people find you guys, Hannah? You, you got any social media? Lately, I've been obsessed with Twitter, which is just my first name, last name, Hannah Smart. Um, and I'm on all the other social medias too. Um, I am constantly like all over the internet, but they should just watch Ferngully. That's where mm -hmm. you can find me, watch Ferngully. Mm -hmm. Dawson. Uh, Dawson Elke, and you can find me on Instagram and YouTube by searching my name. All right. And uh, yeah, find me, Philip Elke, um, on Twitter and Instagram. And um, follow us, or subscribe uh, and rate and review the podcast on various podcasting platforms. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Dawson and Hannah, chatting about this fun, fun film. And as always, have a magical day and a wonderful week. Wom hugs. Where's the Minotaur sauce?